I mean, where the hell should I really even start, right? Sorry, been dying to drop those Drake lyrics here on the podcast and finally felt compelled to do it with all this gone on this week. What am I talking about? Of course, the big, albeit not totally unexpected, news out of the NHRA that they would be introducing two new engine combinations to the E3 Spark Plugs Pro Mod Drag Racing Series for 2020. It seemed as if the shoots on Stevie Fast, uh, Stevie Fast Jackson's Bahrain 1 Pro Mod Camaro had hardly blossomed, hardly blossomed, before NHRA's technical department dropped this bombshell that the 526 cubic inch centrifugal supercharged engines and 960 cubic inch nitrous injected engines would be allowed into legal quarter mile NHRA Pro Mod drag racing for 2020. I admit bombshell is probably a bit of a stretch, as this isn't exactly a shocking development for anyone who's been paying attention, as rumors regarding this move started probably, well, as early as last season, maybe even earlier, and only intensified here in the second half of 2019. I'd say it was at the, probably the U.S. Nationals, when three Pro Charger-equipped Pro Mods, two very well-established eighth-mile hitters, in that of Kevin Ribbenbark and John Strickland's Galat Motorsports first-gen Camaros, as well as a brand-new car, well, brand-new combination, the Elite Motorsports-fielded late-model Camaro. For those, uh, you know, hardcores of you, this was the car that Danny Rowe drove the last uh, the last season in 2018. It was a roots-blown Hemi deal with a, with a clutch. Uh, Elite Motorsports purchased that car from Danny Rowe Racing, and converted it over to a pro-charged Hemi with an automatic. They had Clint Hairston behind the wheel of that car, California-based driver at the NHRA U.S. Nationals. And first time out, struggled a little bit, but uh, did make some progress. And it really seemed at that moment, at least for me, it was in that moment that the writing was officially on the wall, that we'd see these cars join the club in the very near future. So, whether it was a well-kept secret or not, which it wasn't, I mean, expected or not, it's hard for me personally not to see this as anything short of a legit big deal in drag racing. Specifically, obviously, Pro Mod. First off, um, I mean, you think about this. This is a class that was birthed by heads up by the heads-up desires of top sportsman racers in the late 80s, as well as the business acumen and innovative spirit of Mike Thermos, founder of nitrous oxide systems in os this guy i mean you think about it back then it was big inch at at the time of course nitrous engines and supercharged wedge headed engines then came even bigger nitrous engines and then blown alcohol hemis which as a side note i believe is kind of an unsung ripple in the history of pro modified probably not talked about enough the introduction of the blown hemi um and I think, personally, the biggest curveball the class Pro Modified has seen, in, in my opinion, was the introduction of the twin turbocharged combo, which first started, same with blowers, on wedge-headed engines and then eventually hemi-headed pieces. Initially, turbo cars and NHRA legal competition were far less regulated than they are now, largely treated like supercharged cars. There was no boost limit, no turbo size limit, up to 650 cubic inches, etc., 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 I remember those early days, and honestly, I felt bad for those guys. I felt horrible for the handful of dudes that were giving it hell with those hair dryers. 
I mean, I remember when Mike Moran first started showing up to NHRA national events here and there back in as far back as like 2005, if you think about it. I mean, and if you think about the big picture, that's really not that long ago. But if you think about where turbos are kind of on the totem pole of door slammer racing now as compared to where they were, you know, in 2005, it's unbelievable how far they've come. And I don't think it was until 2008 that Mike Moran actually qualified for an event that had more than 16 cars. I actually have a note scribbled down here somewhere. It was in Las Vegas in 2008 that Mike qualified number 10 with a 611 at 245 miles per hour. That car, now think about this. When you think about the history, and I'm just trying to give you a little bit of a history lesson on Pro Modified. Not that I'm the be-all, end-all. I'm not a statistician or a historian. I'm just a big proponent of fast door slammer racing. But think about this. Mike Moran's Monte Carlo had a 650-inch big block with twin 91-millimeter precision turbos on it. Today... Turbo racers are limited to 526 cubic inches, twin 88-millimeter turbochargers, and limited to 33 pounds of boost, which is probably only about 60% of what those turbos would actually are actually capable of producing in a max effort type situation. You also had during that time, which is someone who I think has a who has had far more of an impact on the sport of drag racing and Pro Modified in particular than anyone really wants to give him credit for, and that's Brad Personette, who during that same time frame was making big waves in Ed Marks's 53 Corvette with a twin-turbo Hemi, a Lenko, and a 10.7 Ram clutch, right? This guy was doing it as hard as you could possibly do it. And it wasn't, like I think by 2009... Brad Personette was really getting things stirred up. He was running like low 590s, well over 250 miles per hour. And I think that's when everyone started to really get concerned, I guess, if you will, about the potential of this twin turbo combination. It was late, I think, in 09. Yeah, this this is a funny memory. I remember I was standing outside of the Monte Carlo Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas, Nevada, and the race... The NHRA, the, the final Pro Mod race of the season, it was over. I think this was like Monday. Yes, it was Monday. I remember it well. It's weird sometimes how certain things in your life you just can't, you just remember them like picturesque. I remember where I was standing. It's funny. I was walking to Diablo's, which is, God rest her soul, one of my, was one of my favorite Mexican restaurants in Las Vegas. It was right out in front of the Monte Carlo Hotel and Casino, and it was right on the street. So people were walking by, hooping and hollering, and it was just tons of action. Uh, Murder Tundra loved the place because they had Corona Light on draft, which around these parts is a pretty big deal. So anyways, I was walking to the Monte Carlo to meet my guys for lunch. My phone rings. It's a, I, I don't want to get anybody in trouble, so I'm not going to name a lot of names here, but my phone rings, and I, uh, I get a call from a top-ranked guy. I'm going to say it's a top-ranked dude in the NHRA Pro Mod ranks, the, in that whole organization. And he says something, something to me. He asked me a question, which still to this day, I'm flattered that anybody asked me a question. It's the craziest thing. It's so humbling and invigorating, and I feel so blessed sometimes because I just love drag racing so much. And it's days like today when I'm sitting here recording a podcast 
that people are actually going to listen to talking about drag racing that I realized just how dope my life is. So anyways, but I get this phone call and he goes, hey man, what do you think of this whole twin turbo pro mod deal? We're getting, you know, people are kind of up in arms and basically there'd started to be some pushback from the blower and nitrous guys, like serious pushback. And there was a fairly common belief amongst the group. And I'm, I don't mean to speak for everyone, but I'm going to, that the belief was that wherever a twin turbo car goes, it dominates and or ultimately ruins everything. And the example that I was provided by yet another super well-known top-ranked championship winning racer was that of NMCA, Pro Street, and Bob Rieger. I don't know if any of you remember Bob's like legendary twin turbo small block Chevy S10. It was black, extended cab S10. It was actually one of my favorite race cars of all time. It still probably is. And which then his big block Chevy powered 57 Chevy, another kind of unsung hero of the turbo revolution. But basically, the way it was explained to me was that, hey, they put weight on Rieger and he just goes faster. There's nothing you can do to slow those cars down. Like, the combination is evolving faster than the rules could ever keep up with. Everywhere the cars go, they ruin everything. And he continued that it was basically those cars are so far away from their performance potential that it's not realistic to have them compete on a level playing field with nitrous cars and blower cars because they're close to their performance limits. They're, they're, they're encroaching on the end. And that, that was the guy's belief. And I actually, I shared that sentiment with, with my buddy. But to answer the question that I'd been asked, what do I make of this twin turbo combination and its future in, you know, legal pro modified, I had to admit that I kind of felt like, personally, it felt like the cat was already out of the bag. Like, there's no, there's no way for anybody to go back. And my belief still to this day is that Turbo cars need further regulation, namely the same kind of mechanical limitations that the nitrous and supercharged entries contend with in the form of cubic inch limits and supercharger overdrive, respectively. I mean, that to me, still to this day, is the missing link. If you want to really, really, and I'm not, the words, words like fix and save get thrown around a little bit. And I, I, I don't know that NHRA Pro Modified Drag Racing needs any fixing or saving. I really don't. It looks pretty good. Now, granted, the car counts are down a little bit, but I, I, I would argue that there's room for improvement. A lot of people, especially in our sport of drag racing, I think everyone is super sensitive in the sport of drag racing, and I used to be this way. I used to be where I was so insecure kind of with our sport and what it represents that I was afraid to offer any sort of critical analysis or say anything that even smacked critical because I didn't want to be labeled a hater, right? And I'm not a hater. That's the furthest thing from the truth when it comes to me and the sport of drag racing and especially door, door cars. But I just say that because nothing I'm saying here is like, I don't want this to come off as negative or anything like it. I just want to explore these topics. I find it fun I really do. I find it very entertaining and enjoyable to explore these topics, to talk about these things, and I don't want anybody to be 
you know, to take super offense or take too literally my belief that there's room for improvement with ProMod. And I'll tell you that in my opinion, if we really want to, you know, address one of the, the glaring issues that exists with this particular type of drag racing, it's that supercharged cars have a pulley on the front of that blower and on the crankshaft that dictates it's a mechanical it's a metal thing it's a physical object that dictates how much overdrive that super how overdriven that supercharger is right that engine is and how much power it can make the atmospheric conditions and tune-up kind of control everything else turbo cars in their current situation when they're running an 88 millimeter turbocharger that's capable of making you know whatever 50 pounds of boost let's say uncorked with no regulation to limit that boost with an electronic controller that's just not an answer to the to the situation that's not a that's not the proper solution the proper solution is to identify a boost target 33 pounds of boost say that's where the cars are currently and put turbos on them that will only make 33 pounds of boost that at at or near max effort will make 33 pounds of boost. That's what has to happen. But I kind of I digress here. I'm I'm getting away from the point. I want to do this little dive into the past to just really identify how big of a deal it is to introduce two new engine combinations. So let me circle back around here. I want to I want to say that a it seems incredible that the class has been able to not only you know, survive, but thrive and grow with the challenge that are these three different power adders, right? It was hard when there was two. It was even harder when there were three. And now that there's going to be five, it's going to be salty. It's really going to be an interesting thing. And I just think that it's really incredible because circling back to what I was talking about a minute ago, back in late, you know, back around 2009, 10, 11, there was a group of people that if given the opportunity, would just have written turbo cars out. Screw it. Pro Mod is about blowers versus nitrous. Screw those turbo cars. Let them go race eighth mile. Let them go race against themselves. Literally, there are people still today, I think, that feel that way. Truly, still today, that feel that way. But, I, I you know, again, in 2011, NHRA did take a step in the right direction with a spec 88-millimeter turbo rule. But again, that wasn't enough by itself to slow the cars down effectively for any reason, you know, any amount of time. For example, this is very interesting. In 2011, at the last race of the season in Las Vegas, the top three cars in qualifying were twin turbocharged Pro Mods. Personette was number one, 584 at 256.70. This is almost 10 years ago. Leah Pritchett with an 85 at 252, and Melanie Troxel, bit of a blast from the past there, with a 589 at 253. There was literally, in 2011, there was literally a 12-mile-per-hour disparity between the top turbo speed and the top supercharged speed in almost 20, 18, 18 miles an hour, to the fastest nitrous car, which was funded by a foreign country. So it's not like it was a a middle-of-the-pack or bottom-dwelling nitrous car. We're talking about the baddest nitrous car in the country at the time was nearly 20 miles an hour off the pace. So it feels like it's important to note here 
because I'm on this big tirade, but it feels important to note that at this point in time, if you think back, if you're able to, we, I'm, hey, listen, I'm, I, I have rose-colored glasses on. They look good on me. I like them. I wear them all the time. But I think it's important to look back a little bit and remember how far things have come because back at that point in time, again, it's important to note that that was a really interesting time for ProMod. The, the class was finally getting the recognition it deserved, largely thanks to Roger Burgess, his investment in the class sponsorship-wise by, by way of his giant pharmaceutical company, ProCare, ProCare RX, I believe it was, yeah, and Get Screened America, this uh, screening program that he was doing uh, across the country. And prior to this period, uh, NHRA ProMod was, for lack of a better phrase, on life support. Participation had dwindled. Interest in other sanctions and series was most assuredly on the rise. And all the sponsorship saviors, you know, racers who owned big companies that had been, been involved in the class over the years, had basically dried up or turned their attention elsewhere or kind of felt like they'd, they'd served, they've done their time, right? So the idea at that point in time of legislating any combination out of the series was basically a non-starter. Right, because they were struggling to fill fields. So the notion that they were going to write these twin turbo cars out of the rules, yeah, it's, it, it wasn't. It wasn't going to happen. So the next year, or a couple of years later, the NHRA went a step further in reining in the turbo cars. Come, I think it was 2013, when they mandated Joe Aplowski's boost controller as the spec unit for the class's turbocharged entries, which. NHRA used to mandate at that time, and this is crazy to think about because it really wasn't that long ago, 2013, it's like yesterday, a maximum of 43 pounds of boost, right? So they bring in 2013, they, the 88s, the 80, 88 millimeters turbo stay on the cars, um, but they bring in an electronic boost controller that is mandated It's a spec unit, um, hyperactive solution spec boost controller to limit the cars to 43 pounds of boost and side note i don't know if this this probably doesn't help the flow of this thing at all but there was at least one other significant development during that 2010 2013 time frame that i think is interesting and we will talk more about it because i actually had some really interesting conversations on uh saturday in las vegas a couple of weeks ago during the nhra uh las vegas nationals that um, kind of pertain to this, but during that 2010-2013 time frame, there was, at the beginning of the year, was the banning of automatic shifters after the season opener. It was really interesting, and I remember it very well, and it was not, there were people in the pits that were like cheering, and then there were people in the pits that were panicking. I mean, it was a polarizing situation. The NHRA, we come out, First race of the season, Gainesville, Gator Nationals, big crowd, blah, blah, blah. And we and at this point, first race of the season, you can run an automatic shifter, right? The NHRA powers uh, that be get together and they decide that it that it's a driver aid, which this is a conversation for another day, but I, it, it is interesting that they decide no more automatic shifters. So they go from Gainesville having automatic shifters. They go to Houston, no longer have automatic shifters. And boy, oh boy, did that change things. It wasn't too terribly longer, too terribly long after that that they reintroduced 
the automatic shifters and like I like I said there's a ton to talk about with automatic shifters and we will we will do that in the for- future but fast forward and I, I had to do all that I'm sorry I had to talk about what's happening now I just really felt like the stage needed to be set so fast forward through the next 6 years and you'll get us uh, to NHRA Pro Mod as we currently know it which is 1471 root style supercharged hemis 526 inch hemis in suspended door slammers racing at 2,600 pounds, twin turbocharged hemi-headed 526 cubic inch engines at 2,650, right? Turbo cars at 2,650, and nitrous cars up to 910 cubic inches competing at 2,500 pounds, which that 2,500 pound weight minimum, to my knowledge, is far and away the heaviest nitrous pro mods have ever competed. I mean, it's, I mean, obviously there have been pro street cars or some exceptionally heavy car out there race. But as far as the rules, as far as a weight minimum, these this is the heaviest weight minimum these cars have ever seen. So heading into 2020, however, those three established combinations will be joined by 960 cubic inch nitrous engines, presumably with lockup torque converters at a heavier weight and pro charger equipped 526 cubic inch Hemis at a yet to be determined weight. Albeit, I have heard through the grapevine that 2,600 to 2,650 pounds will be where they settle. Another conversation for a later day. Three very different, yet arguably very competitive combinations ha- combinations has, in my opinion, served to make the E3 spark plugs NHRA Pro Mod Drag Race Series like the most exciting and most competitive and controversial eliminator in all of drag racing. I really think that a big part of the secret sauce, and there's a lot of secret sauces that I have identified. Like it's, how many ingredients are in Kentucky Fried Chicken's special recipe? Like 27? I can't remember exactly how many ingredients are in the Kentucky Fried Cheese, uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken special seasoning. It doesn't matter. My point is that ProMod, there's a lot of ingredients, right? And one of the very prominent ingredients I mean, this isn't a basil leaf. Like, a big part of it is all these different engine combinations. Now, it's no secret that I'm a fan of the characters that exist in drag racing, and I, I, I believe personalities will propel our sport forward. But for the hardcores, for those dyed-in-the-wool pro-mod guys, man, it's, it's all these different cars, right? It's new cars, old cars, it's nostalgia bodies and, and late model bodies it's chevy versus ford it's blower versus nitrous versus turbo that th- those what they are are their layers to the story and they if if done properly they're talking points right a lot of times you know the talking points are somewhat difficult to muster but when it comes to pro mod it's just all right there i mean it's all in plain sight and i, I i'm i'm here to say that while I'm super excited, and like I said, this is a huge part of the, the recipe for success, right? This is a huge part of the magic of ProMod. I'm here to say that I don't know that this whole situation with two new power adders or two new combinations is going to be the seismic happening. Some, many in my opinion, many people, but for sure some people expect it to be. So the big question, I guess, is how will the development, how will this development impact participation in the NHRA Pro Mod Drag Racing Series, right? That's what, 
Th- that's why this is being done. It's being done to bolster participation, right? That's what. That's the reason this is happening. So, I've got to say, and again, sometimes these things aren't popular, but you got to talk about them. It, it, we have to talk about this stuff. So, personally, I do not believe the inclusion of these two new engine combinations alone will result in a landslide of fresh faces and new competitors. The door certainly opens a little wider, but it was the news probably that broke on dragillustrated.com back over Labor Day's NHRA U.S. Nationals that the Real ProMod group would be uh, soon disbanding and the NHRA would open their arms to ProMod racers, um, essentially one and all for 2020 that, in my opinion, served as the battering ram for growth. Like, what's kicking the door down for potential growth in ProMod is that open-door policy, not this rule amendment. So if there's a ton of new racers and teams that turn up in Gainesville next spring, it'll almost certainly be because the financial barrier to entry that has existed for every bit of the last you know five years, coupled with the sportsman grade point system, that will serve as the catalyst. That's right. I mean... If you want to run NHRA Pro Mod in 2020, from what I understand, no longer will you first need to, you know, either earn enough grade points to try to squeak into one of the fields where the quota wasn't met or following the rumor of a late withdrawal, nor will you need to purchase a provisional by way of a race sponsorship to the tune of, you know, 10, 20, 30 plus thousand dollars. You want in? Buy a tech card for 800 bucks or whatever it is, but I think that's right, and join the party. There's a whole other story to be told in regard to the situation um, with with tech cards and, and entry fees. Uh, and the NHRA's recently explained, I don't know if this is public knowledge, but I mean, it will be eventually there or it is now. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, the sliding scale car count based entry fee deal that they're going to do for pro mods next year. But again, we will we'll save that for later, too. I suppose there is a chance there is a possibility there's a possibility that the powers that be in Glendora have made calls and confirmed participation by more people than me. But I've rang enough phones in the last two weeks to identify a best-case scenario of three, three Pro Charger cars joining the series on a full-time basis next season. But more than likely two, right? You're, you're going to see John Strickland and Kevin Rivenbark, uh, the Galat Motorsports cars, you're going to see them on the full tour next year. It's great. On the big inch nitrous side, though, unfortunately, I've been, I've yet, I've made a lot of calls, man. I've yet to find, I've been yet to confirm a single full pole, 12 race, fresh faced entrant. To be honest, it kind of reminds me of the lockup torque converter deal a couple of years ago. All the talk. Everybody was raving about this. There's going to be a ton of new nitrous cars turning up. If NHRA would just let those lockups in, man, we're going to have a ton of cars. And I think when it was all said and done, after Jonathan Gray, who was driving a car for Ricky Smith, left, and Shannon Jenkins left, and Chad Green came in, who was just a a, a fresh-faced rookie, uh, teamed up with Pat Musey, and came in, we still, after the lockup, ended up down on nitrous cars. We were down one. Still, even after the lockup, all this talk, all these guys go out and spend all this money, right? $20,000, $40,000, $60,000, by the time they test and everything else, buy a couple spares, buy multiple converters, you know, uh, staters. 
they go out and spend a hundred grand, and we still unfortunately ended up down on nitrous cars. So obviously, the idea behind allowing in the 960 inch cars is to attract outlaw racers on the East Coast, right? The the plan, I'm sure, is specifically to go after guys that are in the PDRA Pro Nitrous division, which is something that, I mean, I guess I've been a proponent of for a while. For me, it's pretty hard for me personally to argue with any strategy that seeks to go where the numbers are. I say it all the time. You have to, if you're going to write a rule, if you're going to do anything to try to increase participation, you need to know what kind of inventory you're working with, how many cars exist, right? And I think sometimes what happens is, you know, rules get written and, and decisions get made and there's not been enough time invested in, in seeing what kind of inventory really exists. And you labor over all these decisions and you're going to do this, and you're going to do that, only to find out, man, that there's just really not a great inventory to work with from the beginning. So I, I'm, I'm glad that they, they did. This makes sense. It makes sense. Introducing this 960-inch deal, it makes sense because there are a lot of these cars out there in the country. However, I've again, I've made calls. I've shot out texts. I am yet to identify a single PDRA Pro Nitrous guy that has told me they're planning on going quarter-mile racing in 2020 on a full-time basis. Why? I mean, I, why did the NHRA do this? Why, why are they letting in the 960s? Again, they're, they're going where the inventory is. So, And it was their only option. I mean, I don't know really what they would have done. If, what are they going to do, really, to encourage the participation of nitrous cars? I've been racking my brain for, like, the last two years as to how we here at Drag Illustrated can somehow popularize and promote nitrous and ProMod. Like, I had a, you know, casual conversation with Modern Racing's uh, Justin Elks, I remember this, uh, based out of Mooresville, North Carolina, and it, this actually last year, he was like the main crew chief, kind of led the charge for elite motorsports as they delved into pro mod racing, and he said something to me, he goes, how did he say it? He goes, you guys need to make it fashionable. You guys have to make it fashionable to race a nitrous car, and I loved, El, you know, Elks' outlook on, you know, what was a pretty bleak situation and kind of remains one. His belief was that if it could be argued or even become popular belief that a nitrous car could be competitive, right, or even have an advantage in NHRA Pro Mod, that all it take, all it would take is a concentrated effort to make it cool, to make it like the forward-thinking, high-tech thing to do to possibly push a few racers over the edge. To either give it a shot to go nitrous racing, or you know, which is this is a this is a big ask, make the switch right to a nitrous combination. We both agreed that it you know was a long shot and definitely you know optimistic thinking, but it did seem worth a try, and we did make an effort and continue here with the magazine. Like every any chance we have across our social or digital channels or on, on the pages of our magazine, if we have the opportunity to shine a light on a successful nitrous racer, we're going to do it. We want those guys to feel good about what, we're, what they're doing. It's kind of a last of the Mohicans deal, and we really have to encourage them, sing their praises, and let them know that we appreciate what they're doing, even though you know they're admittedly doing something pretty hard. 
right? So anyways, uh, we, we did our best, but you know, as far as making nitrous cars competitive, that's obviously beyond the scope of what we can do here at Drag Illustrated, right? We don't have any influence over the rules in the NHRA. I kind of wish we did at different times, but NHRA did conveniently, you know, sarcasm implied there, two weeks before the World Series of ProMod this past summer. So two weeks before the World Series of ProMod this past summer, the NHRA lowered the boom on turbo cars with a three PSI drop, three pounds of boost down, and a much, much less impactful 2% reduction in overdrive for blown alcohol racers. So heading into the fall, it was basically an accepted fact for the first time in a minute that the rules favored nitrous cars. It's been a while. I mean, there was everybody was on board. Since the NHRA has increased um, the minimum weight for nitrous cars by 75 pounds to 2425 to 2500 in an effort, they, they've kind of brought things back. Right, they've they've made an effort to bring things even things back out, but oh, and hey, before your head starts to explode, thinking about a freaking seventy-five pound weight penalty for any combination in any class ever, please know that it's probably more like it was probably more like thirty-five pounds, right? Because I don't know of any car that was able to routinely make that twenty-four or twenty-five minimum. Chad Green's Bickle Camaro, maybe, because I know they spent a lot of money on making that thing super light so that it could be an outlaw car, an eighth-mile car in the future if it was sold. But nobody could get down to that weight anyway. So long story long, I personally believe that it's going to be a real challenge for the NHRA Pro Mod Drag Racing Series to obtain, let alone maintain, a car count meeting or exceeding 35 cars. While I'd love to see it happen, I just can't help but believe, honestly, that the series has reached a level of performance and competitiveness where achieving that kind of participation, it's just going to be difficult. I mean, a significant bump in the purse money, increasing first round loser money to like a thousand bucks or something from the current 300 would really be a big help. And there's a lot of other things to consider here, you know. I mean, again, I do think, you know, upon further reflection, I do think we're going to see some fresh faces in 2020. I really do. My point here is that I don't know that it's going to come by way of this rule change. I really don't. And I don't believe it will. I believe the cars we see up, see turn up next year will be you know, uh, roots blown cars, roots blown Hemi cars. It's a very proven, proven uh, to be competitive combination. There's a lot of people that have a lot of experience with it, and I think we'll see some more twin turbo cars. But it, so my point, I guess, is that I just I think it's important to realize that man, all of this hoopla over this rule change, and I don't know that it's going to serve the ultimate purpose of bolstering. This alone will not, I guess, if we have to use the word, fix things. Um, again, you know, and I, and I think that this nitrous thing is kind of particularly interesting. Um, so I'll kind of dive into that for a minute. But there, there's a lot of reasons why I'm worried that this 960-inch rule isn't necessarily going to save nitrous cars on the quarter mile. Again, it's my personal opinion, and I'm cool, to be honest, with being wrong. 
Like it, when I was younger, I didn't like it at all, and I would throw a big fit if I thought I was going to be wrong or whatever. Um, I, I've I've outgrown that, <laughs> thank God. Um, and frankly, I'm hopeful that I'm wrong in this case. But I just don't see, I really don't, a fleet of current PDRA pro nitrous racers fleeing that arena for that of the NHRA national event scene. Nor do I expect too many NMCA Extreme Pro Mod, Northeast Outlaw Pro Mod, or any of the other various sanctions and series that allow 960-inch cars to turn up at an E3, you know, spark plugs backed NHRA national event too frequently. I just don't. I mean, I think that we, it's my sincere hope and belief that we'll see a few of those nitrous racers turn up when it's convenient. Like at a handful of races that are a reasonable tow. It'd be awesome to see a PDRA star like Lizzie Musi or Jay Cox or the, the recently crowned pro nitrous champ Jim Halsey show up and show out, as Keith Haney would say about himself, in Gainesville or Charlotte where a bunch of those bottle-fed cars are based. But maybe Franklin, Tommy Franklin. Tommy Franklin tries his hand at the quarter mile when ProMod returns to the, national, uh, to the NHRA national event at the, the quarter mile racetrack that he owns, right? Virginia Motorsports Park. It's hard to tell. Most any pro mod racer worth his salt and with a legal race car would struggle to resist the allure of competing at the NHRA U.S. Nationals in Indianapolis, right? Which is probably one of the only events that I can really, that I can easily imagine reaching that 35 car mark. Truly, it's, I, I, and I'm still probably being, you know, overtly optimistic. And the problem is that it's not as simple as just showing up. And that's something that I'm not sure has been considered by everyone that should have been considering it. Like, for instance, think about this now. For instance, there's a minimum of $2,000 to be spent on electronic automatic shutoff safety parts for any non-NHRA professional, professional class racer, right? So per perhaps you'll have to add a case to your transmission and therefore build a transmission tunnel. That's an easy like five to eight grand. Then you'll need to have the underside of your car's uh, carbon fiber front end painted, uh, you know, coated with flame retardant paint. It's another two grand. So you're easily at 12,000 bucks before you've left your house. Then you take into consideration that most eighth mile nitrous cars are going to have like a 486 or 50 rear gear. So you'll also need to pick up a couple of center sections. And probably some gear sets for your transmissions. Holy crap, right? I mean, you're talking 20 grand to really be ready to go quarter mile racing if you're a routine eighth miler, right? There's also the legit financial wherewithal required to embark on a single national event and or the entire 12 race series and how that addition to your schedule will hinder most of these racers likely focus, which is you know, earning points and competing for a championship in PDRA Pro Nitrous, NMCA Extreme Pro Mod, etc. I mean, that's what the guys that, that hop in to an NHRA national event here and there, they're racing for points somewhere else, right? And then there's like the tune-up perspective of things, which I've talked to a ton of different crew chiefs, and it's really an interesting thing because what everyone fears is getting out in left field. You'll hear it frequently. You get out in left field you get away from your baseline, you start to, to try something or whatever, and it's so easy with these cars to get really lost. So 
say the typical PDRA Pro Nitrous car consumes like 6,000 to 6,500 pounds an hour of nitrous during the course of a 3.6 second run, right? A nitrous car that has to live to race another round of quarter mile drag racing, like a near six second run, you, you can't put that much nitrous through it. You can't. It's maybe 5,000 to 5,500 pounds an hour. So the margin for error and ability to survive aggressive tuning is monumentally changed when another 660 feet come into play. So think about it. Does a, does a front-running PDRA Pro Nitrous player who enjoys two-day races, the ability to travel home on Sundays, to be in the office on Monday, does that guy really want to lose a handle on his kind of moneymaker baseline tune-up? I'm not sure. Will there be some that give it a go? Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. And to those racers, we say a hearty thank you. But I've scoured all these sheets, all the qualifying sheets, and I'm telling you, I don't see a lot of names that jump out to me as nitrous racers that are going to come running. Maybe I'm wrong, and again, I genuinely hope that I am. But this E3 Spark Plugs uh, Drag Racing, Pro-Mod Drag Racing Series, this deal is different. Right? Say what you want to say. Say whatever you want about radial tire racing. It's great. Love it. Or pro stock. Love it. Whatever else. But think about this. Eight of the top nine points earners this year in NHRA Pro Mod were all financially backed on some level by a foreign country. It's not an international business, my friends. That's an entire nation. These cars are, they've got flags on them, initials of foreign royalty. It's a wild time. I mean, this is a wild time to be a pro mod drag racer or a fan. And I mean, I, this is kind of closing notes here, or I'm getting close to the end. But I do have to ask, I'm curious just about the mechanics of all of this. Like the real hard parts mechanics. Because... I know that a tremendous effort and investment has been made by Procharger, as well as several major engine builders like Eric Dillard's Proline Racing Engines, uh, Richard Freeman and Elite Performance, Jake Harrison, those guys, they have worked hard to turn the centrifugal supercharged Hemi into a reliable and competitive option for quarter-mile Pro Mod racers. And I believe everyone involved would tell you that they're, they're almost there. They're making big progress. But I think they would also tell you that this is a combination that is still in development, right? Lots of room for improvement and a considerable amount of unknown. And I know for a fact that the same can be said for 960-inch nitrous engines on the quarter mile. There is very little data to pull from with this combination. And very few, like, consistent, regular 1,320-feet pulls. Typically, when we see these cars run quarter mile, it's at like special beginning of the year or end of the year outlaw races, and it's in mineshaft conditions on superbly prepped racing surfaces. I mean, th that scenario produced Dean Marinas's 557, which broke the internet, Freddie Scriba's uh, 567, and Ed Burnley's 573. Those are like, if I close my eyes and try to think about like the most significant nitrous runs of like the last year or two 
those are definitely, you know, quarter mile runs. Those are, you know, in the conversation, if not the conversation. All of those happened in the aforementioned scenario. Killer air, killer track, beginning of the season, end of the season. I mean, that's just, that's how that deal has worked. So for most of these NHRA ProMod guys, I mean, if you're going to run a full pole, I mean, you're making 100 to 120 runs a year. Probably, right? I've spoken with uh, a bunch of racers who believe they might need to put a crankshaft in one of these 960-inch motors after like 30 or 40 runs on the quarter mile to be safe, right? And considering they're like 7500 bucks a whack, you better have a strong stomach for engine maintenance-related expenses, right? And being that you can't get a crank like on Amazon Prime, you probably better order a couple of them to be ready for Gainesville, right? I mean, I'm just trying to lay the groundwork so that everybody understands that when these rules are written, you know, don't be surprised when you don't see 600 nitrous cars come running next year. There's a lot that goes into this. I mean, I only say all of this to make the point that this whole situation is, at the very least, extremely complicated. To say the NHRA technical department has their hands full is an understatement, massively. I don't envy them, and I sincerely, sincerely applaud their effort to try new things and take chances, think outside of the box. I applaud it, and I encourage it. There was, in my opinion, there was no chance that we'd see any new nitrous cars in NHRA Pro Mod for 2020 without a rule change. Something had to, something had to give... The door is now open, for sure. How many come through? How long do they stay? I don't really know. I'm not certain. I know that I've made enough calls and sent out enough text messages to strongly believe that there are at least eight Pro Charger cars interested in in NHRA Promon next year on some level. So, considering 36 cars earned championship points this season, the lowest number since 2012, I looked, with the high being 47 in 2018, the influx of the influx of cars produced by these aforementioned inclusions would most certainly serve as a return to glory for what is one of the true bright spots in drag racing right now. I mean, if we get eight Pro Charger cars to show up next year, you know, along with some other fresh faces, I mean. I mean, I honestly think, I mean, I've, I've labored over this, man. Um, those cars, those eight Pro Charger cars, in conjunction with those that are produced by the series, you know, open door policy, the new open door policy, I think, and I mean, I'm on the other side of the argument here, I do think that we could see the first 50-plus car season in the history of NHRA Pro Mod next year. And that's pretty exciting. Right. And, you know, a side note here is that the NHRA averaged 21 pro mods in 2019, roughly 58 percent of its total participation for the year. So think about this. In order to hit the stated target of 35 pro mods on average next season, you'd need closer to 98 percent involvement with things as is. So assuming next year we maintain nearly 60% of our racer base competing at all 12 events, 
it'll take 60, 60 total cars earning points in 2020 to reach the goal. It's wild, right? So, in closing, I do want to say that I have to at least acknowledge the X factor in all of this that is competing for a Wally at a NHRA national event. That situation, simply purchasing a tech card, seeing your name on the entry list, and merely having a chance to win a Wally in a professional eliminator category is the holy grail for an entire world of drag racers. It might not be everything to everybody, but I have firsthand experience with this. And let me assure you, the pull is strong. And the NHRA knows it. They know it. There's nothing like being in the staging lanes at the Gator Nationals or the U.S. Nationals, racing in front of a sellout crowd, knowing you're going to be on television, having swarms of fans come by your pits. I mean, I've seen racers get giddy, like childlike excited about waiting in traffic to get into the race that they're competing in. Just knowing all that traffic out there is for them. Racers can say whatever they want, but they all want to race against the best of the best, and they want to do it on the biggest stage in drag racing, and that's the NHRA national event stage. So, everything that I just laid out can all be blown up by that X factor. How many people want it so bad that they'll spend that money or they'll blow up whatever they're currently doing now and dive right in? All I know, and, and the reason I wanted to, to have this discussion, all I know is that the magic of ProMod, part of the magic of ProMod is a multitude of different power adders competing fairly against one another. And I think it's important it's every bit as important to preserve the combinations that already exist in this format as it is to introduce new ones. So, that's my rant on this whole ProMod new engine combination deal and a little bit of background on everything that's happened over the course of the last few years. So, thank you guys so much for listening. I appreciate it so much. Remember to uh, spread the word about the podcast, man. Please, I appreciate it so much. Click click like somewhere. I'm not sure where exactly. Uh, share it. I think that's what I want you to do. Maybe it's rate and subscribe. Yes, that's what I'm looking for. Subscribe to the podcast. Subscribe to the West Buck Show. So every time I upload something like this, some, some craziness, you get a notification. And leave a rating. It's super important. Or that's what some smart people told me. So thank you guys so much for listening. I'll talk to you next time.